We have two Bible readings this morning, uh, an Old Testament reading and a New Testament reading. The first of these from the book of Genesis in the Old Testament. We're in chapter 1, so you'll find that on page 2 of the Blue Church Bibles, or you can follow the reading uh, on the screens. Genesis chapter 1, I'll be reading from verse 24. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them, Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds in the sky, and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw that all that he had made And it was very good. There was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now we move to the New Testament, to Matthew's Gospel. Chapter 11, I'll be reading from verse 25. That's found on page 976. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, 
and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Uh, just as we get going, maybe I can just fill you in on where we're up to, where we're heading, because it's been a bit of a, a disjointed series. Uh, quite a number of weeks ago, I started off looking at the first chapter of Genesis, and we spent time considering God the Creator, what that meant for us. Uh, we then, in the subsequent weeks, looked at the whole idea of the image of God, uh, the implications of that, and then you might recall that Warwick de Jersey was here and spoke to us about the whole nature of work in the economy of God's purposes and the way we're made for that. Next week, uh, we'll move into Genesis 2 and be talking about the whole nature of relationships, God making us for relationships, particularly picking up on the nature of marriage. That's quite a contentious issue in our particular society right now. Uh, So I'm just letting you know that uh, we'll we'll dig into that next week. We'll see how we go. And uh, I'll hang around afterwards so you can grill me with questions if you'd like to. Uh, Beyond that, we're moving into Genesis 3. We'll think through the whole nature of uh, sin in this world, the implications of that, and what it means to live in a world that is fractured by sin and brokenness and how we go about doing that. So that's roughly where we're heading. These first three chapters of the Bible, I think, are foundational to our understanding about who we are as people, uh, but more importantly, about who God is, because that's the way in which we work out who we are and therefore working out the whole nature of of how we're to live in this world. I reckon if you've got these three chapters tucked away, you're all set up for the rest of the Bible, actually. So uh, uh, they're really essential. Today, we're looking at the whole question of rest, right? This is not a cue for you to fall asleep, okay? But uh, that is the, what we're looking at, especially as we focus on these opening verses in Genesis chapter 2. So as we do that, there's an outline there in the leaflet. I'll pray. We'll, we'll dig into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, that you're a God who speaks to us. Father, we do pray that in your kindness, uh, you'll speak to us this morning, that we'll have clarity around the whole uh, nature of uh, how we're created, who you are, and especially on this question of what it means to be people who rest in you. Uh, Father, give us insight, and Father, we pray it'll be practical for how we live our lives from uh, here on in. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, If I was to ask you how your week was, and uh, it's not a question you need to answer, but if I was to say, how's your week been? Let me say the most common answer I get to that question is, flat out, (laughs) I've been just so busy this week. And even when I talk to retirees, I say, how's it going? Uh, Now you've stopped your paid employment. They say, I've never been busier. Right? I don't know how I had time to do the things that I currently do. And I see some of the, um, those who are in that situation nodding. That, that's the, the state of our world. We feel that, that frantic sense of being busy. And a big part of our busyness is work. Uh, it's estimated that the, the average person who works for wages will probably work for about 100,000 hours in the course of their life. And uh, that is second only to the number of hours you spend dedicated to sleeping. Uh, that's uh, it's a second major activity when it comes to life. And when, it, when you talk to people about the nature of work, what I discover is that uh, some people 
work to live and some people live to work. You know, that is, some people, uh, the way they're wired is they, they take time out to refresh to get into their work. They love it. It gives them their sense of focus and purpose and it's a, yeah, it's a great sense of satisfaction. But there are others who are the exact opposite. You know, they see work as a sort of necessary evil in order to open up the possibilities to do other things. Uh, when I was in my 20s, I had a friend who was in his low 30s, Dave. Now, Dave's goal in life was to retire by the time he was 40, right? To make enough money to retire by that stage. And it led him to make a whole lot of decisions in life to achieve that purpose. So he never got married, right? Because he figured wives were expensive. And uh, so he decided that it would be much better to achieve his goal of retirement by not settling into that sort of relationship. He invested in different uh, uh, properties and things like that. And he was the first man, as I understand it, in the state public service to cut down to a permanent four-day working week. Right? He was a trailblazer when it came to retirement. And uh, Dave didn't get to retire by the time he was 40. He was actually 42. Right? And uh, when I caught up with him you know, at different times after that, I asked him how it was going. He said, yeah, how, how's life? He said, life is just fun, fun, fun. You know, that's the way he expressed it every time. And uh, he really enjoyed it. Some live to work, some work in order to live. Uh, the thing you'll know, though, is that work is very defining. Uh, uh, in our society, often we consider other people based on the sort of job that they do. Or we can think about ourselves in terms of the sort of job we do or our lack of job. Um, I talk to people who are looking for employment. You know, the employment stats for Australia came out this week and there are a lot of people who are either unemployed or underemployed. And that's a, that has a big impact on their sense of well-being. Um, the, the whole question of identity and work is tricky. Um, I talk to stay-at-home mums or parents these days who uh, sometimes grapple for that sense of who they are, even though they're doing probably one of the most critical jobs on the face of the planet. You know? And that, that is a characteristic of the nature of the world in which we live. Work is very defining. But I want to suggest to you as we come to Genesis chapter 2 today, we observe God resting. God resting. It's a funny idea, isn't it? God resting. But, but I want to suggest to you that we are made to, to rest, not just to work, and that if you understand what the Bible says about resting, you discover that rest tells you more about the purpose and meaning of your life than work does. Right? Resting is much more important than work for understanding who you are. Right? Let's see if, uh, if that turns out. Let's uh, turn our attention to this part of the Bible and think about it. Remember, if you're looking at the outline, firstly, God is a worker and so are we, the God of the Bible. He is the God, the only God. He systematically constructed the whole universe uh, he's a God of order, a God who creates beauty, a God who sustains absolutely everything that is made. And we are made in the image of God, right? Chapter 1, verse 27, 
mankind or humanity are made in his image. Male and female, he created them. Uh, Back in verse 26, we're told here is our task to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air. Or if you go on to verse 28, we're instructed to subdue the creation and to rule over it. Uh, When you get to chapter 2, verse 15, uh, we see man in the garden working and taking care of it. Um, Our work is that we're entrusted with the task of caring and superintending the world. We always serve God as our boss. That's the same for today, of course, because God's the one who's created everything. That is, he's the ultimate ruler, and we're always serving him, no matter who your human employer is. When you get to Genesis chapter 3, there's a rejection of God. We'll come to that in a few weeks' time. But it has implications when it comes to working and also resting, actually. Uh, That is, humanity says to God, God, I don't want you to be the boss of me. I want to be my own boss. That's essentially the decision that's made. And that's at the heart of sin. And that decision to sort of push God to one side has implications for everything in this world, including work. When you go to verse 17 of chapter 3, God says to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you through painful toil you'll eat of it all the days of your life it will produce thorns and thistles there's a a fatal flaw in the created order because of humanity's rejection of god and every single one of us know that that's the case it is fun to grow flowers and herbs in your in your garden right but the question you've always got is why why do the weeds grow twice as fast as the flowers? You know, there's, there's that sense of the struggle of grappling uh, with life in this world. We'll come, come back to that in a few weeks' time. But here's the question I want to ask. Why does God rest? Why does God rest? As you go through this opening section of the Bible on the sixth day, uh, from verses 24 to 31 of chapter 1, we have the apex of God's created activity. He creates humanity. Um, This is the only creature in the image of God. And God, uh, we saw, has a special relationship with human beings that's not replicated by any other relationship with anything else in creation. Uh, But I want to say to you that humanity is not the climax of this first week of creation even though we're the climax of the created activity. See, the climax happens on the seventh day. Remember, uh, biblically, in general terms, the number seven, and it's the case here in Genesis, it represents perfection or wholeness or completeness. And here we arrive at the seventh day. This is meant to attract our attention. The other thing is when you get to this seventh day, I don't know if you picked it up, but there's a there's a change, a very significant change. Remember, as we work through Genesis chapter 1, it's very formulaic. The, the pattern is the same day on day on day on day on day. Uh, but when you get to chapter 7, there's a variation. And this is deliberate, and we ought to see what it is. Chapter 1, verse 5, we're told there was evening, there was morning, there was the first day. Now, chapter 1, verse 8. There was evening, there was morning, there was a second day. Chapter 1, verse 13. There was evening, there was morning, there was a third day. 
Chapter 1, verse 19, there was evening, there was morning, there was a fourth day. Chapter 1, verse 23, there was evening, there was morning, there was a fifth day. Chapter 1, verse 31, there was evening, there was morning, there was a sixth day. You're picking up a pattern here? Right? Yeah. And then you get to chapter 2, verse 3. There was evening, there was morning. It's not there, is it? Look at it. Look at it with me. You get to the end of the seventh day and there's no conclusion to it. Now, why? Why? Um, remember, scriptures are not accidental. You know, it's sort of, you know, the, the, when this was being put down, someone didn't accidentally put a line through the, the phrase. It wasn't like that. This is, this is God's word, and it's very deliberate. We'll, we'll come back to it, all right? Just hold that question, put it to one side. We'll return to it. It's significant. But here's the thing. Why does God rest? Chapter 2, verse 2. On the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Now, I don't know about you, doesn't it feel just a tad anticlimactic? You know, like, remember what's happened in the first week. God has made the heavens and the earth, every solar system that exists, the whole universe. Um, the capacity of that is just ginormous. God has intricately fashioned the very world in which we live, including the creation of humanity, human beings, um, to live in and take order. I mean, these are extraordinary things. Billions of stars, millions of galaxies. And then we get to the seventh day and God rested from all his work. And you've got to ask the question, why? You know, was God tired? Did he need a rostered day off? Um, was he bored? Uh, did he need a break to stimulate his creative juices? God's not human. Right? He's the Lord of heaven and earth. And obviously the answer is not any of those things. Let me make it clear. At this point, God is not doing nothing, if you can excuse the double negative. Uh, notice in chapter 2, verse 3, on the seventh day, God rested from all the work of creating that he had done. That is, God had completed the work of creation and now he actually turns his attention to sustaining absolutely everything he's made. God's not doing nothing. Right? He's still active. In the New Testament, Jesus in John chapter 5, verse 17, uh, it's in the context of a Sabbath debate, uh, with uh, leaders, religious leaders, and he says to them, my father is working until now and I'm working. God never stopped working. He just completed the activity of creation. Now, I want you also to notice in chapter 2, verse 3 of Genesis that God blesses the seventh day and made it holy. Uh, to bless is to uh, set something apart as special or important. So why is this seventh day, or as it became known as the Old Testament develops, the Sabbath, why is it so important? Uh, by the time you get to the New Testament, uh, the whole idea of Sabbath has been sharpened up as a day when people do nothing essentially, no, no work. And I think that Christians traditionally have thought of it in that way. I was talking to someone 
before the service started, who um, uh, mentioned a time when he was washing his car on a Sabbath when some fairly strict Christian arms of the family came to visit and were horrified by the fact that he was cleaning his car on the Sabbath. You know? And that was very common uh, a number of years ago, that, that sense of downing tools and downing activity on the Sabbath. And Sabbath was the, the day for going to church. It was a time for family, uh, that sort of thing. But I want to suggest to you that the idea of Sabbath and rest in the Old Testament and New are so much more than just not working. So much more than just not working. Let me just briefly, and this is really brief and I apologise for it, but I'm just going to sketch out a few of the key features of Sabbath as it develops in the Old Testament before going to look at Jesus and considering uh, how he impacts it. In Exodus chapter 20, uh, we see the Ten Commandments being delivered to God's people from Mount Sinai. In verses 8 to 11, one of the Ten Commandments is no work on the Sabbath. And as you go through uh, the Old Testament, you, we see that to work on the Sabbath could lead to the execution of the Israelite if they disobeyed that commandment. Pretty serious stuff. When you go to Exodus 23, uh, verses 10 and following, there's a variation on this Sabbath idea. Every seventh year for the people of Israel was a Sabbath year. A Sabbath year. On that year, no crops were sown or harvested. Uh, The poor were allowed to help themselves to anything that grew in the fields and the wild animals could do that as well. Now, are there any... How many people here have worked the land, work on the land? There's a few I know that have, right? Just stick up your hand if you've got a farming sort of background, okay? Now... Let me ask you, if I was to say to you, farmer, say you're still farming, some of you are, um, what I want you to do is every seventh year, just give it a break, okay? Or just sort of not do anything that year in terms of cropping, harvesting, that's it. Just a break, right? If you're a farmer, how do you feel at this point? How are you feeling? Come on, David. <laughs> how are you feeling? If you're worried. Worried. Now, why are you worried? I mean, the answer's obvious, sorry. But why are you worried? Income, right? The banks will foreclose. There's all sorts of issues here, aren't there? How do you think the average Israelite felt who was a hand-to-mouth sort of liver off the land when they had this seventh year where the instruction was, don't sow, don't harvest? How'd they feel? What do you think the message was? Yeah. Rely on God. I mean, what else are they going to rely on? Certainly not the crops that are growing in their fields. It's interesting, isn't it? um, It's not so much to do with not working, but the consequence of the not working that's actually so important at this point. When you go to Leviticus 25, we discover a year of jubilee. There's every seven times seven years, right? So a Sabbath sort of year built in. All the land that had been sold off or leased out over that 49 years, reverted back to the original owners. It it came back to those families who owned it to start with. It was a really levelling sort of experience. Now understand that this whole idea of Sabbath in the Old Testament was not so much a time to ban work. It was actually a time for celebrating and remembering a relationship with God who created the heavens and the earth. 
That's the focus of it. A time to remember that they are reliant upon God to provide for them and to depend on him for that. The whole idea is actually captured brilliantly in the book of Deuteronomy. So at this point, the people of God are looking into the promised land effectively and their instructions from Moses about how they should live once they get into this land. Right? That's the instruction around it. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, uh, Moses tells them to keep the Sabbath and he explains to them why it's important they keep the Sabbath. Listen in Deuteronomy 5 for what they're told. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Isn't that interesting? The linkage between you were saved and rescued out of the land of Egypt and therefore you should celebrate the Sabbath. Now, why are those two things connected? Well, there's obviously the idea of refreshment, you know, the, the sort of recharging of the batteries. But primarily the idea of Sabbath and the Lamb was to remember the blessings and care and the goodness of God and to also look forward to the future and the fact that this same God who cared and blessed his people would continue to do so. In that sense, I think... Um, the Sabbath operates a little bit like a wedding anniversary in a family where there is a strong marriage. So when wedding anniversaries happen, uh, Sue and I, we're coming up to our 40th wedding anniversary next February. Right? Uh, and that'll be a significant occasion. We will, we will do several things on that occasion. We will look back on 40 years and give thanks for the way in which God has been so kind to us in a whole range of ways. We will stop in the moment and give thanks to God for his present blessings to us and how rich they are. And we'll also think about the future and know that our times, as they always have been, are in the hands of the Lord God who is gracious and rules heaven and earth. That's the way Sabbath operates. Sure, uh, we're to stop working. That's the point here in the Sabbath. But the goal of life is not ultimately to work. The goal of life is a relationship with God. It's trusting him. It's serving him. And Sabbath was the time to stop and to remember that they are the realities, to, to recalibrate life according to those truths. That's the way the Old Testament unfolds. What I'm going to do is jump to um, Jesus in the New Testament and make a couple of observations here about Jesus and Sabbath before I then try and apply this in a few particular ways as we think about life today. So Jesus and the Sabbath. It is interesting, when you read through the Gospels, Jesus got into more conflict with religious leaders because of the Sabbath than anything else. Right? He was always having fights with them about this issue. In Mark chapter 2, uh, from verse 23 to chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees observe, there are two sort of Sabbath incidents here. The Pharisees observe Jesus' disciples going through the fields and plucking heads of grain, right, in order to sustain themselves. But the Pharisees, who are really sharp 
they notice what's going on. They say, aha, disciples plucking grain, they are harvesting. Right? This is work they ought not do on the Sabbath. Right? Very, very sharp they were at this point about how not to work. Jesus engages with them. When you get to chapter 3, there's another incident on the Sabbath day that's coupled to this one that illustrates the concern that Jesus has. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. There, it's Sabbath synagogue, a man with a shriveled hand. I take it a, a, a deformed feature, a crippled feature to his hand comes into the synagogue. That would have created a level of tension anyway. But there he is. And the Pharisees are watching to see what might happen. And Jesus says to them, you know, is it good? Is it right? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? I mean, you you get the picture, don't you? Here is a man for whom life has been so hard. And, And Jesus says, do you think it's right for me to heal his hand today or not? And what we're told is the Pharisees just hold counsel. They don't engage. And Jesus is just angry and grieved at their hardness of heart. And he heals the man's hand in front of them all. And then we're told the Pharisees go out And they hatch a plot with the Herodians on how they might kill Jesus on that occasion. Jesus uh, was happy to do the work of the Lord on the Sabbath. Now today, uh, you might say, well, this isn't a Christian problem. In many ways, what's happened over the last 30 years is we've become incredibly libertarian around the nature of what not to do and what to do on the Sabbath. Uh, That is, if you take Sabbath as being Sundays, there were strict rules around it, say, 30 or 40 years ago in Christian circles. These days, total flexibility, you know, whether you work, you know, playing sport, your activities. That is, we're at the opposite spectrum of the problem, I think. And I think the issue we have today is we've lost any sense of the focus of rest because we've adopted our culture's understanding of rest See, the idea of rest in our culture is either to relax and read the paper or to just engage in sort of active leisure pursuits uh, when we're not working, you know, sort of frantically pursuing fun, which is very exhausting, of course, in order to rest, rest and relax. You know, there's a funny combination of things that happen. But, of course, that's got nothing to do with the idea of rest in the Bible, which is much more focused on the Lord and our relationship with him. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, the passage that Stuart read for us, Jesus makes an extraordinary claim. He says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Now, at this point, Jesus is not saying, I will give you a sleep in, right? That's not what he is saying. He's talking about the ability to have peace with God, restored relationship through forgiveness, and to be able to enjoy God forever. And, of course, Jesus makes that possible uh, through his death on the cross and by rising 
from the dead. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament promises and hopes when it comes to rest. What I'd love to do for just a few moments is to um, capture some of the applications around working and resting, Sabbathing uh, today. Firstly, let me talk about motives for working. Um, As I started off, I said a lot of our thinking in our world about who we are is tied up with what sort of job we do. But can I say, from God's perspective, your job or your employment and your personal value do not go together. Uh, Your career, uh, your training, your lack of paid employment, it does not determine your worth. Let me just spill that out a bit more. God does not think a high court judge has any more value than an unemployed used car salesman. That's the perspective that God has. God does not value a specialist surgeon any more than a pensioner. Um, God does not see us that way. Now, the question is, do you believe it? Because it's really easy for me to say that. But do you believe it? So for those of you who actually are in paid employment still, uh, I want you to imagine that tomorrow uh, you are sacked and you're given you know, a week's notice and you can't get a job. Or uh, your business, if you own a business, falls to the ground. Or some other major event occurs. Now, I'm not saying those situations don't cause you concern or they don't stretch you in terms of asking questions about, you know, how you will live or provide and those sort of questions. But what I am suggesting to you is if you go from having a significant job with a good income to nothing, can you still say it, it is right with me and God and I'm still treasured by him and I still have value in his eyes? See? Is that true still that's what it means to understand a relationship with the creator God God does not value you based on how much you earn the key to life and enjoyment is not being fulfilled in your work if you get enjoyment out of your work bonus but of course that's not been the case for most people in the history of creation Should a Christian be the best at their job they can possibly be? I often hear Christians talking that way. Should be the best at your job you can possibly be. God wants you to be that. Which, of course, is absolute rubbish. Absolute rubbish. Because if you're the best at your job you can possibly be, in order to be the best at your job you can possibly be, you've got to neglect other things that are more important. You see, the, the question of faithfulness to spouse or children or... Uh, your concern for your neighbours or a whole lot of other things like that. In order to be the best possible person at your job, you have to sacrifice those things. Now, should you be faithful in your work as you're serving the Lord? Yes. Does that mean best? No, I think that depends on how many gifts you've got. Right? So I worked as a lawyer. Right? When I gave up law and went into ministry, people would often say to me, ah, weren't you very good as a lawyer? Right? <laughs> Now, that may have been the case, okay? But it doesn't matter. That that is, I was faithful 
in my work as a lawyer. It doesn't mean I had to be the best lawyer in Adelaide. See? So you've got to keep thinking through what does God call me to do. And you've got to keep remembering that your work doesn't last. So when I get to heaven, Jesus will not say to me, Paul, welcome, you trusted in Jesus and you drew great wills, you know, and I've got several of them here in the filing cabinet. Oh, here's one, you know, like this will be a matter of complete irrelevance. There will be no need for wills in heaven. There'll be no need for engineers in heaven or doctors or accountants, right? Uh, Tax advice will be irrelevant. That is, our jobs don't last. So we need to have them in perspective. What we need to remember is that God is the boss, no matter what job you do. You want to faithfully serve him. Let me make a, a couple of comments about what Christians should do when it comes to Sundays. Because I think this is still an issue for lots of people. What's it appropriate to do? What sort of, how should I take time out? Uh, how should I focus that sort of time? We've all heard of Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, they take Saturdays off in line with the Jewish calendar. Should Christians be First-day Adventists? Uh, um, when you come to the New Testament, it makes it clear that we're no longer bound by a legalistic view of the Sabbath in terms of confining it to one day. Let me read to you from Colossians chapter 2. Paul says, Don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. They are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. What's being said there is Sabbath foreshadowed the rest that we now have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now Christ has come. There are actually no special days. But I do want to suggest that the Sabbath principle still applies in a range of ways. That is, firstly, we are creatures. And as part of our design as creatures, we are made to rest physically, otherwise we run down. Uh, When daylight saving is introduced, normally happens around the end of March each year, they've done tests to show the impact of everyone losing an hour's sleep. One of the um, things that they've worked out is that the incidence of car accidents rises significantly in the week following the introduction of daylight saving. Just because people are just a bit more tired, they lack concentration, and then they run into other people in their motor vehicles. We know that if you don't get sufficient rest, it has implications. If I don't get sufficient rest, I get grumpy, right? And no one benefits from that at all. Uh, yeah, there are impacts of not resting properly. We need to have rest. There's also more to life than work. Um, that was the Old Testament idea of Sabbath. Work, we're created to work, no question about that. But that's not the purpose of our life. Right? The purpose of our life is about serving God. You then come to the question of, well, which day, if you need to have a break, which day should it be? Or how do you comprise that day? Can I say it's a matter of indifference? Um, Sometimes people say, well, what what you should do is have the day off where you meet with God's people. So if that's a Sunday, take Sundays off. That's the way the Sabbath idea developed. It's just nothing in the Bible about that. Um, That is, it's good to meet with God's people, important to meet with God's people, but it doesn't link the idea of, 
Sabbath rest with Sunday meeting for different reasons. So I don't think those two are connected, even though they're both important. And the other thing I want to say is we do need to resist the cultural idea of rest. That is, our culture says rest equals play equals hedonism. That is, um, you just go flat out trying to enjoy as much of the creation as you can when you have space from work is the sort of message we get. And my observation of Christians is that we have become busier and busier and busier in a whole range of ways uh, over the years and we don't know how to stop and to actually connect with people and to recharge relationally and use that time for refreshment in terms of our relationship with God. We need to have a different sort of pattern not just adopting it, not not just adopting the world's pattern. Now, at that point, let me say I'm not I'm not against fun. Just in case you're wondering, right? That is, God created a good world to be enjoyed, and so we ought we ought to be doing that. Right? That's that's part of how we've been made. But the final thing I want to say is that rest actually tells you more about the meaning of your life than work does. Rest does that. The biblical idea of rest is so much more than taking a day off each week. You see, here at the start of Genesis chapter 2, we have the seventh day. And remember I said there's no end to it? Essentially, you get to the end of the seventh day, no formula that says there was evening, there was morning, there was seventh day. God rests. And it's as if by invitation, God is saying, enter into my rest. Um, join me in this. Enjoy relationship with me. The Westminster Confession of the Presbyterian Church describes our purpose in this way. Our purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I really like that because it seems to me to capture this idea of rest. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 9 says there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Can I say if you're here today and you do not have a relationship with God, you don't know what it means to be forgiven and loved by God himself, then inevitably you'll look for something else to to fill that gap uh, for your sense of fulfilment or your meaning. It might be work, it might be family, it might be hobbies. Uh, there'll be all sorts of ways in which you'll try and uh, plug up that gap if there's an absence of God in your life. But if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have peace with God now. You have rest now because you have relationship with God. And you also know that God will bring you home to heaven, the ultimate conclusion of our promised rest. Now, friends, I want to encourage you to keep remembering that the main goal of life is rest, not work. Right? The main goal of life is rest, not work. Right? So keep that rolling around in your heads and let it calibrate your lives. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, for the fact that here as we, we turn to these opening pages of the Bible, uh, there are such um, huge landscape 
uh, views of who you are and who we are. Uh, the big markers are put into place in terms of how we're meant to know you and have relationship with you. And Father, we pray that this, this idea of rest, um, built into the fabric of creation for recharging, but much more uh, the idea of enjoying relationship with you and the privilege of that. We pray we won't forsake that, uh, forget it, forego it, uh, but rather we'll allow you to keep shaping and, and uh, harnessing and helping us to think through all the implications of what it means to have relationship with you in this world and for all eternity. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.